But I've, I've got a confession to make. I will use the beginning of the uh, sermon to, to bring you this confession. But as I travel home each day from the office here, where I work, and I catch a bus opposite 26, 31, 12, God bless Lothian buses. Um, now, you probably would be thinking, Andy, we know what you do on that bus, you are reading. You're probably reading Calvin's Institutes or the works of John Owen or the um, writings of Jonathan Edwards. I, I know that would be the immediate and instinctive thing that you would uh, think about me. Um, but actually, I, I have to confess, it's something which is less mind and heart-stretching than that. It is usually a thriller, I'm afraid. I read at the end of my uh, working day. I've uh, just finished another Ken Follett novel, uh, and I like to keep up with a whole host of writers, people like Angela Marsons, or Lee Childs, or Marcelli Taylor, or Bernard Cornwall, which may mean something to some of you, but to others, you're going, no, because you read stuff which is far more highbrow than the stuff I read to relax uh, as I make my way home. So I read these thrillers. Now, thrillers, the thrillers I read are plot-driven. In other words, they progress according to the story line. There's no particular shape to them. I, I like to read series. So I'm, you know, whether it's Jack Reacher with Lee Childs or, um, is it uh, Detective Kim Stone? I should have noted it in the notes with Angela Marsons. But... Uh, the books will differ, you know, in terms of length and shape, but it's always plot-driven. And uh, generally speaking, the writer has worked out where the plot will go, and they know where they want to develop the characters, but they won't. Modern writers don't pay attention to the form of a book. Whereas ancient literature had a deliberate shape. There's careful, there is deliberate planning before the first word is ever written of some of the ancient works that we will find from 2,000, 3,000 years ago. We actually saw that recently with the book of Jonah. We'll just put up the outline here. Now, we had a look at Jonah over three weeks, and Jonah, you think, is all about a big fish. Uh, it's not really. The big fish plays just a little bit. But there is a shape. There is a progression. There is a development. There is a, a deliberate mirroring. There is pattern. There is form to the storytelling. You'll, you'll, you'll see it there, how you have scene one, Jonah, the pagans, and the sea. And then that is contrasted with Jonah, the pagans, and the city. Now that is deliberate. That didn't just happen. It wasn't the writer just sat down, starting, started writing, and got to the end of the story, and then, oh, look. But, but rather, very deliberately, ancient writers planned beforehand the shape of their writing. There was purpose. There was intention to it. And we can see the same sort of thing in the book of Esther which we've been looking at. This is the third, this is the final uh, Sunday evening. And uh, there has been deliberate, there is a deliberate shape to this book that we're looking at. And it is there, this shape, to 
subtly point out, to underline the key messages from the book. Um, maybe if I could just explain it in another way. I, I uh, did history, chatting to Jennifer this morning. She's doing a history degree. Yeah. Um, I, I did history, and when you read modern history, modern historians like to say this happened and, and they give reasons. They give their own interpretation. But ancient historians didn't do that. That wasn't how you wrote history. You, you shaped it in such a way that one passage alongside another passage made you think of something. And that was the intention. They made their commentary upon what was happening, uh, not with their own words, but by the shape of the book that was being written. And that is what happens here in Esther. So let's take an overview of the book. Now, we have been working through it over the last two Sunday evenings. Uh, we noticed chapter one, it talks about Xerxes' greatness. There is this incredibly powerful king, King Xerxes of the Persian kingdom. He has a banquet to show off to his guests. And we noted that that was happening because he wanted their support because he wanted to do what his dad had not done, and that was to do a successful invasion of Greece. But there at that feast, as he's trying to show off and say, guys, look how much money I've got, join me in this, and uh, you will get some of this dosh for yourself, but it backfires on him. Because in a drunken state, he commands his queen, Vashti, to come out, show herself off, the queen refuses his command. And following consultation by committee, because this Xerxes, we discover, is not particularly good at making decisions on his own, she's relieved of her queenly duties. Then chapter 2, we see how Esther and Mordecai save the king. You see, Esther conceals her Jewish identity. She is recruited. She is beautiful, and she has entered into a sex contest. That's really what it is. And she wins it. She becomes queen. And her guardian, a civil servant by the name of Mordecai, happens to overhear an assassination plot, and he tips off the king via the new queen. It looks to be just one of those incidental details, but as we'll see later, it's one of the key uh, points of this story. Then chapter 3, a guy called Haman is elevated, much to our surprise. This egotistical opponent of God's people called Haman becomes the king's second in command. Now Mordecai won't honor such a man. He is an enemy of God's people. And Haman becomes aware of it and decides not just to kill Mordecai, but he goes a bit further and says, well, I'm going to kill all Mordecai's people. I'm going to kill all the Jews. I'm into genocide, he says. He works out the day it's to be done, and he sends out a decree for how it is to be done. Then in chapter 4, uh, we notice that Mordecai, along with the rest of the Jews, they hear of this as that decree is published, and he goes into mourning. Uh, and Esther grows concerned for him, and he challenges her to use her royal position to save them, to save her people. Then we come to chapter 5, to Esther's 
first banquet. Now, we're into territory that we haven't covered in our previous two studies. And we see Esther bravely going in to see the king. Will she be received? If he doesn't extend these golden scepter to her, she will be killed on the spot by one of those waiting. But no, the king receives her. And he asks her what she wants. And he, he does it in a very exaggerated way. It's uh, quite normal. Up to half my kingdom I will give you. And actually, she requests that the king and Haman attend a banquet that day, that same day. And at that banquet, the king again asks her what she wants. And again, he uses this phrase, you're up to half my uh, kingdom. And her answer is for them to come to another banquet on the following day. Now, on his way home, Haman is once again upset by Mordecai's refusal to honor him. But his wife cheers him up, as wives do, by suggesting that he erects a really tall, tall pole on which Mordecai can be impaled, which was the way of killing people in those days. Chapter 6. And this is where the story pivots here. This is the hinge on which all the events turn. So we'll take a little longer to look at the remarkable coincidences that turn things around. For some reason, Xerxes couldn't sleep. For some reason, he asks for the history of his reign to be read to him. For some reason, it features the account of Mordecai uncovering the assassination plot. For some reason, the king asks as to what has been done for Mordecai by way of reward. For some reason, Haman just happens to be in the court. For some reason, Haman thinks that the king is describing him as the one the king wants to honor. Actually, it is a scene worthy of the best comedic writing. For the reversal happens, and Haman ends up having to honor the man that he came into court wanting permission to kill. And so he ends up actually parading Mordecai through the city on the king's horse. He's already robed him in the king's robe. And while he is doing that, he has to cry out because this is what he suggested. This is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. It's a brilliant scene. It is comic gold. And the tide is turning in chapter 6. We sense it, and Haman's wife senses it. She tells her husband that things are not going to end well. At which point, the king's officials turn up to whisk him away to the next banquet, this banquet that Esther was putting on. So we come to chapter 7 and Esther's second banquet. Now, for the third time... Xerxes asks Esther, Queen Esther, what it is she wants. By the way, as we're going through the story now, we notice that Esther's name is now preceded by her title. Whereas up to this point, really, it had been Esther, Esther, Esther. Now it is Queen Esther. Queen Esther. And she pleads for her life. And she pleads for the life of her 
people, having identified vile Haman as the adversary, as the enemy. Now look, we need to see what's happening here. There's a dynamic at play that we're not always aware of if we don't inhabit an honor-shame culture. Now most of us here in the West, we don't inhabit an honor-shame culture. Uh, Ours is an innocent guilt culture. But uh, maybe some of you were brought up in honor-shame cultures, very common in the Middle East, very common uh, in Africa uh, and the like. Honor-shame. And by getting the king, you see, to promise Esther three times that he'd do anything she asks, he can't now refuse her request. But at the same time, how can he avoid losing face for a plot that he himself has approved? You see, in that setting, in an honor-shame culture, you can't just go, oh, whoops, sorry, I've made a mistake. Sorry, everyone. No, 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 no. You would lose face. So how can things be resolved? How can mighty Xerxes not lose face? Well, the answer comes when he returns from the palace garden back into the banqueting hall and discovers Haman draped over Esther pleading for mercy. Will he even molest the queen while she is with me in the house? As soon as the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. You see, that's it. That's it. Haman has broken court rules. We understand the rules of those days where no one was allowed within seven steps of a woman from the king's harem. And what's worse, uh, Haman gave the impression of having assaulted the queen as he was draped over her. So Xerxes can save face by having Haman executed for this particular failing. And to compound matters, one of the court officials tells the king about the execution pole that Haman had set up for Mordecai, which really was sort of subtly suggesting that Haman may have had sympathy with those who plotted the assassination, which Mordecai had exposed. That's chapter 7, chapter 8. Chapter 8, we see the plan to reverse the decree. The plan to reverse the decree. You see, the terrorist is dead, but the bomb he planted is still ticking. Can it be diffused in time? That's the issue facing Esther and Mordecai. And what we see is a reversal of what happens at Haman's command. You see, a decree is issued to save the Jews by allowing them to repel all their enemies and opponents. And when it's obvious that the king's main advisor, who was issuing this new decree, was Mordecai the Jew, there's no doubt as to what loyal citizens should do who hear this. Nothing. Now, Mordecai still seems to be wearing the royal regalia. Remember, he was dressed up by Haman in this stuff. He was honored in that way on that day. But now, what was just ceremonial becomes real. He does, Mordecai does become the king's chief advisors, 
advisor with all the actual honours that role held. Chapter 9, Esther and Mordecai continue their saving work, not least by extending the period in which the Jews could kill their enemies in the city of Susa. Chapter 10, Mordecai's greatness is acknowledged. It's very much the you know, a, a somewhat typical ending, they all lived happily ever after type of thing, or riding off on, into the sunset on his camel. Uh, while the whole Jewish nation annually celebrated what he and Esther did and the deliverance that they had achieved. So there's the whole story told, and you see the shape of it emerging on screen. And, and hopefully we're able to see something of that shape, deliberate shape, that the writer used to emphasize that the great turnaround, the reversal of affairs, took place in chapter 6. Chapter 6 is the whole pivot of the book, which deals with the king's dream. So what is this key point? Who's the hero in this story? You see, the spotlight doesn't fall on Mordecai or Esther. The spotlight falls on the fact that the king couldn't sleep. So we see that even the most powerful person and empire was controlled by events outside of their control. In fact, in the Greek translation of this story, what we call the Septuagint, uh, chapter 6, verse 1 reads this, and, and the Greek text read more into the, the Hebrew than was there. Uh, the Greek says, the Lord took sleep from the king that night. The Lord took sleep from the king that night. Now, it actually doesn't say that in the Hebrew, but the Greek text is just trying to emphasize, you know, going, you get it, you get it, you get it. It is God, it is God who's in charge. They want you to see the most vital point of this whole book, that God is the invisible hand turning events around for his people. In fact, we, we find that there are a host of uh, smaller details emphasizing these reversals. The writer, there is a complexity to this in which the writer wants you to see there is more by way of which God deliberately turned things around. Let's just have a look at that. We'll pull up uh, that on screen. Uh, the first, uh, we've got a whole line of issues on the left-hand side. Again, if you've got the video or the audio, you won't probably cut, see this, but uh, on the left-hand side, we've got the king gives Haman his ring, that's chapter 3, verse 10. 3, verse 12, Haman summons the scribes, 3, verse 12. Letters are written, the ring is sealed. Uh, it's with the king's ring that that happens. Verse 13, Jews, including women and children, are to be killed on one day. 3.14, Haman's decree is displayed. 3.15, couriers are sent out in haste. 3.15, we also read the city of Susa is bewildered. Chapter 4, verse 1, Mordecai wears sack, cloth, and ashes. Same verse, Mordecai goes crying through the city. Chapter 5, verse 14, Zeresh, that is the wife of Haman, she advises Mordecai's death. Now, you see, all these things, that looks bad, that looks terrible, but, but very deliberately, the writer wants us to see that there are reversals to each one of those. So, for example, chapter 6, verse 13, Zeresh predicts Haman's ruin. If we can have the next, just hit the next one, there we go. Uh, and then chapter 6, verse 11, instead of crying through the city, Mordecai is honored. 
through the city, do, do you see it's this pattern of deliberate reversals? Chapter 8, verse 15, instead of wearing sackcloth and ashes, Mordecai wears royal robes. Instead of the city of Susa being bewildered, chapter 8, verse 15, the city of Susa rejoices. And, and we see couriers being sent out in haste in chapter 3, 15, and couriers go out in haste in chapter 8, verse 14. And whereas Haman's decree had de been displayed, Mordecai's display, uh, decree is displayed. And it, whereas it was the Jews who were to be killed, including women and children, on one day, now we see enemies, including women and children, are to be killed on one day. And letters were written, and they were ring-sealed, just as we see with Mordecai's instruction, because Haman had summoned the scribes, but 8 verse 9, Mordecai summons the scribes, and uh, whereas the king gave Haman his ring, we notice in chapter 8, verse 2, that the king gives Mordecai his ring. So do, do you see, this is, this is not accidental. It's not, oh, isn't that a wonderful coincidence that that happened? No, this is very deliberately here, though, so that we see that God just keeps turning things around. That God is at work. He is the God of reversals. He takes situations which look dreadful, which look awful, and he just turns them around. So let me draw out a few applications as we bring this book to a close. The first is this, remember and celebrate. Remember and celebrate. You see, this book is an explanation of the Jewish feast of Purim. Uh, we find some of its details there in chapter 9, verses 27 to 28. The Jews took it on themselves to establish the custom that they and their descendants and all who joined them should without fail observe these two days every year in the way prescribed and at the time appointed. These days should be remembered and observed in every generation by every family and in every province and in every city. And these days of Purim should never fail to be celebrated by the Jews nor should the memory of these days die out among their descendants. So this account is written so that God's people, the Jews, might remember and celebrate. Now, interestingly, the date to celebrate this feast was not on the anniversary of the battle that was fought over their enemies. That, was, that took place on the 13th day of the month of Adar, but rather the celebration happens on the two days following, the 14th and 15th of the month of Adar. So what they were celebrating when it came to Purim was not the death of their enemies, but rather the fact that they had been delivered and they were able to celebrate life and joy. Now, of course, as Christians, we look beyond the Feast of Purim to the work of God's promised rescuer, Jesus Christ. And the fact that he came to liberate and to save all God's people who are trusting in him. See, just as the Jews look back to the work of Esther and Mordecai, we look back to the work of Jesus on the cross and his victory and resurrection over the grave. Do you know, sometime later after the events of Esther, when the Roman Empire was in the ascendancy and, and, first, and fierce persecution was breaking out against Christians. 
the Apostle John was given the book of Revelation to write. It was a bit like the purpose of Esther. It was intended for God's suffering people, for that young church filled with fear and anxiety. And and this book is written. And, And in this book, for example, you have Jesus appearing and saying this in Revelation 1, verses 17 to 18. Do not be afraid, says Jesus. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and now look, I am alive forever and ever and I hold the keys of death and Hades. I'm in charge. Or Revelation 21 verses 4 to 5. He, Jesus, will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I'm making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. You see, my friends, there will come times when the onslaught and hatred of the world against God's people will seem overwhelming. And you may feel that is how it is today in the society in which we live and operate. And we'll be daunted. We may well be daunted. And we may well be dismayed. We'll be asking where God is. Do you not do that at at times in what we face and the headlines we hear and the the political correctness that is going on? And you say, God, where are you? What are you doing? Why are you silent, God? Why don't you intervene? And maybe you feel a bit tempted, like Esther was, just to hunker down and to take the path of least resistance. But friends, the message of Esther is that God is constantly at work to save his people and to demonstrate his rule. You see, we see Esther boldly going into the king's presence to plead for her people. And we remember not Queen Esther, but we remember King Jesus who went to the cross and took upon himself the wrath due to people like us. My friends, it's not Purim we celebrate today, but something that reveals the boundaries of God's grace are far wider than nationality. These will be familiar verses. 1 Corinthians 11, verses 23 to 26. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread... And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You see, in the, in the communion meal that we regularly celebrate as a company of God's people, we remember, we celebrate the cross of Jesus Christ. We look back. Friends, that's what gives us such joy. That's what speaks to us of God's holiness. That's what reveals to us the glories of grace. That's the ultimate reversal. People who deserve nothing but death receive life through Jesus. And you may be here this evening and you may say, I I just feel 
I feel so crushed. I find it so difficult. It is so hard, this world we are going. Look at the laws that are being passed. Look at the movements that are sweeping through our country. Look at the pressures that we are under. Some of you school teachers who are going back uh, tomorrow and in following days, you're probably going back and there are going to be pressures upon you, things that you need to advocate. And you're going, oh, goodness me, is it worth it? Remember and celebrate. We are to be people who look to the cross of Jesus Christ. And we don't look back to the Feast of Purim, but to something far greater, something far more glorious when Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Savior of sinners, came and he took the punishment. We remember and we celebrate the work that was done for us on Calvary's cross. And when things are crushing you down, when it feels too hard, we remember and celebrate. But then secondly, we trust and pray. We trust and pray. Now, just for a moment, think about your own life. What were the circumstances that led you to do the work that you are doing? Or to be in the place that you're living or to be with the spouse that you may have? Or how did you come to saving faith in Jesus in the first place? Was it an accidental conversation? Was it a chance meeting with someone? Was it seeing a poster or a program? Was it reading a book or a tract? You see, maybe all the events surrounding these things may have appeared as chance encounters. Oh, that was lucky. But this book, this book of Esther, is a wonderful reminder that God is always at work. And even in the most insignificant and at times sinful situations, God can bring out good for his glory. Actually, maybe you're here and you're living through some of the toughest times in your life. Maybe it's a serious, maybe a terminal illness. Maybe you're going through a broken relationship. Maybe you have rebellious children. You've experienced deep depression. Maybe you've known what it is for you to have your hopes crushed. Or maybe you have the pain of isolating loneliness. But through them all, even those events that could never be described as good, we know that God is at work to fulfill his glorious purposes. We rest in him. We trust him. Him. We bring to Him our tears and doubts, our pains and complaints, knowing that through such thorny paths, God is leading us home. And knowing that God is in charge doesn't stop us from praying. Actually, it's quite the reverse. Like Mordecai, we pour out our hearts before Him. It's because he's in control of all things that I'm encouraged to seek his face. You see, for the Christian, there is no passive, 
Que sera, sera, what will be, will be. There's no resigning ourselves to fate, saying, well, God's in charge and it doesn't really matter. No, actually, we know the one who's ruling, so we seek him all the more. We are a praying people. We should be a praying people. It was quoted this morning by John. Let me quote it again. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. When darkness veils his lovely face, when I can't see him, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. His oath, his covenant, his blood support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay on Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Trust and pray. But finally, think and respond. Think and respond. You see, this book is a book of choices. The question it raises is, with whom do I identify? Like Esther, do we go along with the practices and customs of a worldly culture, or do we do what she did? She counted the cost. She took a stand, irrespective of how she was viewed by others. You see, for some of us here, that's an enormous challenge. We've become so embedded in this culture that our consciences are actually no longer stirred when we act inappropriately. Our mates see no difference. Our worth actually comes from how many likes we get on Instagram, not who we are in Jesus. And the challenge for us is to identify with Christ and his people. Not in some sort of weird and eccentric way, but in act of overflowing mercy and lavish grace. I belong to Jesus. But there's also a challenge here to those who don't yet identify with Christ, who don't follow him as Lord, who don't name him as Savior. Because Esther shows us that even if you're the richest, most powerful person on the face of this planet, it doesn't mean that you're wise or you're satisfied. You see, Haman rose to be Xerxes' right-hand man, we know from the story. He was immensely rich, yet this ego was crushed. Everyone else bowed down to him, but there was one person who didn't, and that was enough to upset the man who had everything. And all he had was so swiftly and so unexpectedly taken from him. And actually, Xerxes himself, about eight years after the events that we're looking at, when this book closed, Xerxes was assassinated by a plot that was set in motion by his own adulteries. You see, you can have it all, but have nothing. And you have a choice to make. 
Will you identify with the followers of Jesus Christ? Will you surrender to his rule? Will you find in him the freedom and joy that your heart craves? Will you look to Jesus Christ and see there is one who is supremely worthy of your attention and praise? My friends, when Mordecai issued the counter-decree allowing the Jews to defend themselves against the attacks of their enemies, there was a period of nine months before it all kicked off. We are told that Mordecai issued his decree in the third month, and we know it was in the twelfth month that the warfare was going to be allowed before the killing started. There was nine months to choose which side you were on. Nine months to identify with one group or another. And God in his mercy has given you time to think about these things. To consider your allegiances. To look at the evidence. To listen to God's call. But my friends, let me say this. There is coming a time There's coming a day when that time runs out and you won't know when. That's why the Bible urges you to respond today. To respond while the opportunity is before you. To respond while God's voice is heard. To respond while your heart is warmed. To respond now. To identify with Jesus Christ. To come to him and recognize him as Lord and Savior over your life and say he is yours and rest in him and rest in everything he's done to secure our soul's salvation there at Calvary's cross. Will you identify with him or will you say, I couldn't care? Jesus, I know better. Jesus, I'm going to go my way. Jesus, the things that I feel I'm made for, I'm going to try and find them. I know no one else on this whole planet has ever found them in anything else than you, but I'm going to try. There is coming a time when you'll be called to account. Let's pray.